0: sexy techies
1: hey everybody welcome to episode number 10
0: Woohoo! double digits we did it we did it Ten. it's
1: like we've made it <laughs> i know
0: i don't know what we did but we did it
1: we've uh we've sat here 10 episodes in a row 10 weeks in a row Yeah. recorded an episode put it out there and some people are listening
0: i know thank you some people <laughs> we appreciate you some people
1: uh And because we appreciate you so much, we are going to do, actually, we won't just do this once, but we're going to start and do a listener mail type episode at some point. (laughs) So we've already got, what are you laughing at? (laughs) So I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) We've already gotten some uh, feedback, some suggestions about things to talk about. Uh, But if you would like to send anything in, whether it's a question, uh, it can be a question about something we've talked about, a question about another topic related to tech or startups or content creators, a suggestion for a future episode, anything you'd like, send it in. You can DM us on Instagram. I'm Tony.coms.
0: And I'm May Mosa.
1: And you might get a shout out on the show.
0: Yeah, we'll see what happens. This is I'm so nervous.
1: <laughs> All right, May. to kick off today's episode,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'd like you to tell me maybe, I don't know, can you give me three examples of iconic companies Mm. that you remember when you were a kid you know kid or teenager or something like that that are still around today doing well Mm.
0: that are still around today doing well
1: yeah you know still iconic they were iconic companies then they're iconic companies now
0: I don't know if they're iconic, but I don't know why this is the first thing. General Mills, because all the cereal that I used to eat when I was younger are still kind of around today, like Frosted Flakes and okay. Cinnamon Toast Crunch.
1: That's a good one. I should have been more specific. How about okay. like um, maybe something that deals in some fashion with technology? <laughs>
0: oh, not, not food? <laughs> okay. No, I mean... get okay, yeah, my mind. <laughs> food's fine, but
1: like... Yeah. Oh,
0: wow. Technology when I was a, a kid... Because things have really changed. Maybe um, broadcast, uh, TV broadcast companies like NBC, ABC. Okay.
1: Broadcast networks. Mm -hmm. What Um, else?
0: Since we're talking about TV, maybe uh, brands of TVs themselves, Samsung and Pianasonic.
1: What was that last one?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Panasonic. <laughs> okay, the, the Chicago accent <laughs> yeah. on full display. Um, i trying to think of, um, gosh, I'm sure there's something. When you put me on the spot like this, I get nervous. <laughs>
1: okay, well, that's fine. I was just wondering. We are not going to be talking today about companies, iconic companies that were around when we were kids and are still around today. We are going to be talking about iconic companies that are no longer with us.
0: Oh, R.I.P.,
1: R.I.P. iconic companies. You just couldn't keep up.
0: Sorry. I'm, oh, the company. No, you, <laughs>
1: you, you and the companies. I'm
0: going down in the grave with them.
1: <laughs> so I decided I wanted to talk about some companies that haven't made it. We've we've spoken mostly about companies that have done well. Last right. few weeks we've talked we've done some startup stories about companies that, you know, have done really well. I just wanted to take a different turn.
0: Yeah, well knowing about people's failures is also a way for others to learn how to be successful.
1: It is. Yeah, we should learn from the mistakes of the past.
0: Right, absolutely. This this could be really exciting and it could help people who are thinking of starting something, you know, if they're if they are at a fork in the road, maybe they have now after this a clear answer as to which path to take. Maybe. We'll see. I well, don't know. I'm curious to know what um, what companies you're about to highlight.
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about which direction to take this. And, you know, we could go the scandal route oh. and talk about companies like Theranos, mm. FTX, or Enron. Yeah. Uh, and we'll probably do that at some point, but not today. Oh, OK. All right. <laughs> um, we're also not going to talk about dot com era uh, bubble burst tech companies like pets.com or Webvan. That could be another episode, too. And we're also not going to talk about Quibi. You remember Quibi?
0: I, why does that? It's like unlocking some core memory, but I, I can't.
1: It shouldn't really be finger. a core memory. But Quibi, Quibi, so in 2020, Quibi raised $1.75 billion. And it was going to be this new media company. Um, and it lasted all of eight months. Didn't, oh. didn't even make it out of 2020 alive.
0: No, I have no idea what Quibi is.
1: Okay, well, it, you've already erased it from your mind. You probably saw dozens of Quibi commercials <gasps> leading up to the launch oh, of Quibi.
0: wait, like the Super Bowl had Quibi commercials, right?
1: Probably. I mean, they had to spend that money somehow.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's where I knew what Quibi was, but I didn't know what it was. All right, well, we're not talking
1: about them today either. Okay, all right. Okay, <laughs> today we are talking about companies killed off by the innovator's dilemma.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Are you familiar with the innovator's dilemma?
0: No, but I'm assuming it's a dilemma that innovators come across <laughs> when they're trying to innovate.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, The Innovator's Dilemma was a book, is a book. It was written by Clayton Christensen. It is called The Innovator's Dilemma, When New Technologies Cause Great Firms to Fail. So, Clayton Christensen was a Harvard professor and businessman. Um, this is, I think, his most famous book. It, he really, in it, he really goes into sustaining innovation versus disruptive innovation and what happens when large incumbents are faced with new technology uh disruptive technology and they and they make some poor choices mm-hmm. um maybe get hit with some bad luck and they don't really make it out of it unscathed
0: mm-hmm. okay okay
1: and in, in the companies that we're going to be talking about they are you know, they were the dominant players mm. in their industries. Okay. Um, so they relied on existing technology. They already had invested a lot of money and time and training mm-hmm. uh, into the resources, into the, the products that they were familiar with. Right. And they had a huge market share. Okay. And so when they think of innovating, they generally think of improving their current technologies. Right. You right. know, maybe more um, incremental innovations yeah. in scale? How can we deliver this cheaper maybe to our customers? Um, and they have an existing customer base that they have to worry about, which is very important yeah. uh, when we when we talk about some of these companies. Kay. On the other side, you have disruptive technologies and uh, disruptive innovation. Uh, these often start out very small, mm-hmm. catering to a very small subset of the population. So they're n- not very interesting to these big companies at first. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often buggy. Maybe they're slow. They don't satisfy the demands of the larger population that the the existing incumbents cater to. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for the incumbents to not think that these technologies are a threat.
0: Right, or just kind of like turn a blind eye to them. Yeah, they can dismiss them yeah.
1: uh, very easily, as we'll see. But these technologies can also advance very quickly. Mm-hmm. They can overcome those setbacks or, or drawbacks that make them easily dismissible Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they can innovate very quickly and capture a large share of the market. Mm -hmm. And they can leave the previously dominant players behind if they're not careful. So those are the types of companies that we're going to talk about today.
0: Okay, okay.
1: I have a feeling that all of our listeners will likely be familiar with all of these companies. Okay, yeah. They were each, at one point, the most dominant player in their respective spaces. Yep. None of them are with us today in the form that they were when we knew them best.
0: Okay. My so. wheels are spinning. I'm like trying to figure out. I'm trying to like follow along and figure out who you're talking yeah, about. Like slivers
1: of some of these companies still exist, but they're doing different things yeah, and they're yeah. a shell of their of their former selves.
0: Okay. All right.
1: So let's start this off. Let's talk about the company that was originally known as Research in Motion or RIM.
0: I'm supposed to know this? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> wow, I'm dumb.
1: <laughs> they are much better known as Blackberry.
0: Oh my gosh. Oh, I loved my Blackberry pearl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, at, at some point, they actually changed their name to Blackberry uh, Limited, but they started off as a company called Research in Motion. Uh, the original Blackberry device was a pager or a beeper uh, as some people would call them Um, but it also had a keyboard and you could send email with it
0: oh wow
1: pretty advanced for back in the day isn't that that's actually seemed like if i take myself back to like me in grade school or middle school or something like that that is the technology of the future oh my
0: god you'd be like the coolest kid if you had the beeper that you could like email from yeah i just i would
1: hook up my hotmail account
0: oh hotmail <laughs> yeah
1: that was probably what i had back then yeah uh and i would be sending off hotmails while i was selling items on ebay <laughs> <laughs> i just
0: remember beepers like because I, I used to have to like page like my dad to let him know that like i i came home yeah and we'd have like codes like because you know for, for those who don't know what a beeper, I don't know like what demographic we're talking to right now. but Yeah, like, you might as well explain this thing. <laughs> it is you basically you call a number and then you it asks you to like leave a number to call back and then the person with the beeper gets the number. But like my dad and I had codes for each other like, you know, I think like seven meant that I was home. Nine meant that I went to a friend's house or something like that and then i would like leave my friend's number so like if they needed to call back ah um and then i just know that like other people like the cool kids in my class that had beepers you know you could leave the numbers that spell hello upside down you know and things like that that that, that was the cool messaging we did with beepers back then
1: yeah i mean that was pretty awesome back then like just the <laughs> thought of oh someday i could get one of these yeah. like that i would be the cats meow
0: yes <laughs> the cats pajamas <laughs>
1: Um, so those were that was the original BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. A slightly later version, was it actually looked more like a phone mm-hmm. and it had a larger screen on it, but it required a headset to plug in. So you actually oh had to plug gosh. a headset in to, to use it. So it wasn't like you couldn't just hold it up to your head oh, and weird. make calls with it. Um, but they were moving in the direction of modern phones and BlackBerry started innovating. They came out with BlackBerry Messenger. Mm. So at some point their phones could handle media mm. um instant and instant messages you could send you i remember you telling yes. me about blackberry messenger because i never had a blackberry and you were like oh yeah oh,
0: bbm I, yeah oh
1: bbm gosh. yeah you were <laughs>
0: Berry, Messenger BBM.
1: you were like i can't believe you don't have bbm <laughs> and i was like what's bbm and you're like you're not cool enough to know what bbm is
0: <laughs> it's like the equivalent of like get um iphone users getting um a green text instead of a blue text like when an android is yeah yeah
1: (laughs) you're welcome bbm (laughs) yeah so i mean blackberry also innovated in a few other key spaces so they were known as the most secure platform Mm -hmm. so it became a kind of the the gold standard for uh, business clientele but and also for government users Mm. so Adoption of Blackberries increased pretty quickly uh, throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, They also had a full physical keyboard. Yes. uh, So like a QWERTY style type keyboard where you could type, you know, using all the letters. Whereas the other cell phones at the time used something called T9 Mm -hmm. Word uh, where, yeah, you had to press, you had to press, a number a few times to get the letter to that you to wanted remember yeah um yeah. and actually you could get pretty fast at that thing at oh yes T9. oh like,
0: i know that was like a whole nother like language and skill set yeah. that people like developed right that's so funny yeah i re- but and there was also a technology like later where you didn't have to like scroll through all like you know press two three times to get to C. It, a combination of letters like they had the the intelligence oh to that's know right yeah i remember that what word you're trying to spell even if you only like hit yeah. the number once yep technology man oh <laughs> what will they
1: think of next <laughs> blackberry users loved their blackberries yes um they were addicted to them true there were you know jokes about that they loved the full like the physical keyboard yeah they loved the the click of the buttons that you pressed down like the little pop or click that it made when you when you pressed it down and it popped back up at the time most people would have probably thought that they would have a blackberry device for the rest of their lives
0: <laughs> that's true <laughs> in
1: 2006 blackberry released the blackberry pearl
0: yep that's what i have
1: you had the blackberry pearl i thought yes. so so the blackberry pearl was a slightly slimmer blackberry it wasn't as wide as the right. traditional blackberries that was uh that was the big innovation of the year in 2006 for blackberry
0: well it had a scrolly ball too yes
1: that's right it had the scrolly uh instead of the track pad yeah it had the track ball yeah um which was awesome yeah yeah so that was different and mine
0: came in pink
1: and okay well, i mean <laughs> that's, that's innovation that's right there sold me. <laughs>
0: uh
1: 2007 saw the launch of the blackberry curve which um, I think that one actually had that same track ball instead mm-hmm. of the track wheel on the side that mm-hmm. was very popular with the Blackberries for a long time. But 2007, remember, so as BlackBerry is launching their, you know, these these slight innovations w- and tweaks to their yeah. products, that's the year that the first iPhone came out. And not much lo- later, the first Android devices came out in 2008.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And
1: so these are full touchscreen devices. Devices yeah. and actually the initial reaction to them by blackberry users was not very favorable People liked their buttons and their full physical yeah, keyboards to like
0: actually like feel the clicks yeah. yeah,
1: and and a lot of people said, you know, they would never switch to a full touchscreen phone Like they liked their keyboard They 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 were too fast at typing on their physical keyboard uh, they would never get that fast on a touchscreen where they couldn't feel the buttons. I
0: was probably one of those people, but yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of you know, a large percentage of people were originally uh, in that camp. So you know, you had your first iPhones, and then you had your first Android phones coming out 2007, 2008. BlackBerry's new device in 2008 was the BlackBerry Flip. Okay. All right. So I looked at a. Uh, I didn't remember this one off the top of my head, but I looked at a picture of it earlier when I was researching for this episode. It kind of looked like the Motorola Razr, which would be cool, except the Motorola Razr came out in 2004. Yeah. So four years earlier. So it
0: looks like it was like taking a step back.
1: Well, or it was, you know, BlackBerry saw the success of the Razor phone and they thought that that's the direction that these phones should be going. Slimmer, they could flip, um, you know, they could flip in half um, to get them to be smaller. And, you know, it took them four years, but they came out with something similar. Now in 2008... So, when those first Android phones came out, a year after the first iPhone came out, BlackBerry released the BlackBerry Storm.
0: Yes, I remember that name. Can't remember what it did.
1: So, it was the first BlackBerry phone that had a full touchscreen display. Oh, okay. Okay? So, they were only a year after the iPhone. hmm But it wasn't an iPhone. So, BlackBerry, they knew that their users loved the click, and they were also kind of late to this party. Right. So their first full touchscreen phone you actually had to press down on the screen to get it to click okay so like the screen itself was a big button and depending on where you pressed it would register like a different click
0: oh interesting so it wasn't like because i know touchscreen phones like iphone and android like it gave you that like click sensation when you touched it no, this that was one. made
1: like electronically. Though um, yeah. um, the BlackBerry one was made mechanically. Oh wow! That's <laughs> yeah. so Funny. I think that they thought that like, oh, our users still need that feel. That click. Like they want, like we wanna, we wanna meet in the middle. Like we wanna create this touchscreen device because that's you know we see that this is this might be the way that things are going. But our users, you know, in our user research, we see our users love the the click.
0: So I. I mean, I get that like maybe they did a touch screen to maybe get um, people who were iPhone users or Android users to be BlackBerry users, but Android and iPhone users are are used to touch like or tap, sorry, to mm-hmm. tap to select and not click to select. So I'm sure that didn't translate well for them.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. So th- I mean, that product was a flop. The, yeah. the BlackBerry Storm was not well liked. So, in 2010, BlackBerry launched the BlackBerry Torch. That was a full touchscreen phone. No click anymore on the on the phone, but it still did have a slide-out keyboard because they couldn't get rid of it, you okay, know? Yeah. Their users kept, you know, they knew their users and their users wanted their keyboard.
0: Their users are starting to sound older and older and more like crotchety. Yeah, <laughs> well, and the thing is, we're only moving
1: a year, you know, a couple years at a time. Yeah. But things are changing quickly. So... First of all, they were three years late, right? They were three years after the iPhone.
0: Right.
1: And their technology... So the iPhone was also three years after the the first iPhone, right? So the iPhone was getting better every year. Right. This BlackBerry Torch phone, the touchscreen was terrible. Mm. The technology was years behind. You know, it may have been modeled after the original uh, iPhone or even worse because they were trying to catch up. Right. And the interesting thing was BlackBerry tried to meet kind of in the middle in mm-hmm. in these technologies like we're trying to do touchscreen because you know we we see the market kind of liking that stuff but we also know our users like their buttons right so we'll just give them both and like they can choose right, right. and the problem with that was apple and android users were not going to switch to this device right that yeah. seemed like you know my 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 dad's device right. or you know my yeah. grandpa's device yeah. that like they were already happy with the the new device that they had, and this was not better. Right, right. So, like, like they didn't blow it out of the park with this thing. Yeah. And their loyal BlackBerry users, who, who they thought, you know, just wanted the buttons, they didn't want that touchscreen either, mm-hmm. that, like, n- subpar touchscreen thing. Right. And then they had to slide it open to get to their keyboard. Right. So... Just all sorts of product mistakes uh, thrown in there. I, I
0: don't know. I feel for that because the collaborator in me or like even just like the people pleaser in me. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's the direction that I would have also gone if I were, you know, one of the, like the product designers for. The sure. Uh, yeah.
1: I mean, it's this is a difficult position to be in. I mean, as as much as it's like, oh, woe is me. Like I'm a huge, you know, billions of dollars. comp Like I'm a company worth billions of dollars. How do I keep all that money? I mean, it's it's th- that's one of the problems with the innovators dilemma is like yeah. you've got this existing user base that's very large and clearly they're buying your products because they like them right. they like some, you they like you better than the alternatives at the time right and you're surveying them and you're finding out what they like and you're listening to them but you're thinking in the present instead of in the future mm-hmm. so you're you're listening to your users and what they like right now and it's difficult to and, and you're saying, well, we need to keep these users because they pay, you know, they pay for our products, right. and this is what they're telling us they want.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and you're not seeing a few years down the line right. uh, where these shifts are going to happen, or even if you are, it's hard to it's hard to know because you see those as such small percentages of the market yeah. uh, at the time. Right. So right. 2010 was the peak year for BlackBerry. They had 43 percent of the market share in 2010 for smartphones we'll call them smart yeah in 2011 that dropped to 30 percent from 43 to 30 in one year yeah in 2012 that cut in half again to 15 percent oh no (laughs) they're going down and in 2013 (laughs) it dropped to under six percent oh wow so their fall from the top was very fast yeah oh And it's all because they made some mistakes. Right. I mean, they made some mistakes and they got caught up in that innovator's dilemma. And there's a great quote. It is often attributed to Henry Ford. And he said... The car guy. The car guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's just making sure. (laughs) Model T. Yes.
1: He said, if I had asked people what they wanted, Mm -hmm. they would have said faster horses. Mm. And so, yeah. So the point of, of the quote is people don't necessarily always know what they want right? right they know that the their existing solution is a horse yeah and if you if you ask them you know what can i do to make it better they're gonna say make my horse go faster yeah. so i can get there yeah. faster they don't know they don't know about cars yeah <laughs> right
0: or it's it's to but i mean still like survey your users like if you know going back to yc's you know
1: Talk to your users, yeah.
0: Talk to your users, but don't take their feedback literally yes. because there could be a message or you know an idea that you're missing. You can use
1: it to understand their problem, yeah. right? So they, they want faster somewhere. horses because they want to get somewhere faster. Right, yeah, exactly. It's your job to figure out how to yes. get them there faster.
0: Yes, but like, of course, me being like, oh, okay, let's like exercise the horses more. Or <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, maybe that was the first step. I don't know. This is... Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> so that's the story of BlackBerry. We're not going to... Beat a dead horse here. We're gonna yeah. move on to the next one. <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right. Next up, and we're moving in order from least to most nostalgic for me personally.
0: Okay, I, I mean that BlackBerry Pearl is pretty. Nostalgic. Well, I never had one. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think my my dad had one, but yeah, okay. yeah I didn't have much attachment to it. Okay, so I know a lot of
0: people did though. I have to think like you though.
1: I'm gonna give you a hint on this one. Okay. You've got mail. Oh. Eh, uh. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> AOL. America Online. So, founded in 1985 as Quantum Computer Services. Uh, It was originally like an online chat system for the Commodore 64 computer. That didn't go very far, but in 1989, Mm -hmm. the name was changed to America Online, and they decided to go after the internet service provider market, Mm -hmm. realizing that the internet, which previously um, had been limited to use by universities, like research universities and colleges. They saw that the internet was going to become more widely available. Technology to access the internet was growing in adoption. Um, So America Online emerged as an internet service provider um, and a software provider that had things like chat rooms, Mm -hmm. instant messages, um, and an email interface for, you you know, basically the early Um, days of the personal computer did you have america online at your house at the we were household back in the day
0: very um late to that party i like there's a little childhood trauma associated with it i mean one we only had one phone line so it was like a whole thing about like getting you know internet added to it we actually started with oh gosh i can't remember what the other internet was there like yeah was yahoo one? Uh,
1: I don't know. if I can't remember if Yahoo had their own uh, ISP, but um, CompuServe was another. I think we had them actually before AOL. I don't know. Um, and
0: it was like a whole thing where like our whole family had to share like one screen yeah. name. Yeah, Prodigy.
1: Actually, I think there was one called Prodigy that we had for a time. Yeah, there were a okay, bunch. Okay, okay. But, but
0: all my friends had AOL. Okay. And all I wanted was AOL, but...
1: So you made the noise before. Um, <laughs> I think we should probably explain that for some of our younger <laughs> listeners. So <laughs> the internet... <laughs> Used to be, uh, when it first started gaining mainstream adoption, you had to get on the internet through a landline phone. Mm-hmm. And when you did, you, you also needed a modem to make a, to place a call from your computer through the phone line. And when you did, it sounded like... Um, I'm going to say a fax machine, but you may also not know what that is. But (laughs) uh, it it made the noise that May made earlier. It's kind of like a ringing and a beeping and a A little bit of uh, scratching, hissing. (sighs) Yeah, some weird noises. (laughs) Um, You can look it up on the internet (laughs) to hear what it (laughs) sounded like. Um, And then you were connected to the internet at blazing fast speeds. (laughs) Blazing fast, uh, where it might take you five minutes to download a single picture.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh.
1: So. That was how you connected to the internet and America Online back in the day provided, they were called an internet service provider. So um, you had your phone line and if you only had one, that means you couldn't make a call and be on the internet at the same time because your modem was using oh, the yes. uh, the phone line. So that's why May mentioned they only had one line. Um, then... You know, if someone's expecting an important call. Yes, it was you know. always
0: an issue. Yeah. It's like, get off the phone. Or or somebody would pick up the phone not knowing someone was on the internet and kick them oh, off the internet. Oh, kick you right off the internet. <laughs> right
1: in the middle of downloading that picture that you wanted. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Yeah, or that MP3 or something. Uh, yes.
0: Yeah, but like some, some families had a fax line already, and so they were able to utilize their fax line as their second line for the internet. Knowing that, I mean, yeah. it, and fax is kind of, well... I mean, maybe they were dwindling, maybe not because of email, but, you know, y- it was less likely that you'd be kicked off because you were receiving a fax than or, mm. or you know, sending a yeah. fax.
1: So we, it didn't take long for us to get a second phone line. Um, I think because of, just Ooh. because of how much we... It, fancy. <laughs> no, I think just because of how much we used the internet um, and it was a problem. I mean, we didn't have cell phones. So if anybody wanted to call you, they had to call you on your landline home phone number. Yeah. Yeah. So we got a second line so we didn't have to worry about all that business so america online quickly became the most popular internet service provider uh in the country their signature sounds mm-hmm. you know the welcome yeah you've got mail oh my um and then the door um yeah the door noise for okay. chat rooms exactly the door opening and closing you know they really had people locked in
0: i know yes those are those are some like core memory sounds that i don't think i'll ever not hear that that man saying you've got mail yeah it haunts me
1: i know (laughs) so and and one of the ways that aol was so successful this is another core memory um blast from the past their marketing strategy at the time do you remember what it was their their primary marketing strategy
0: i don't i mean i know you're gonna
1: you're gonna remember as soon as i say it so they sent out millions of free trial CD-ROMs. Oh, yes,
0: those CDs.
1: Yes. To basically every household in the country was getting these CDs um, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. All these deals, you know, you could get a free trial, a 30-day free trial. You might have a platinum edition of America Online, which was, I don't know, you got a 45-day free trial or something. At one point, this statistic blows my mind. Half of all the CDs produced in the world were AOL free trial CD-ROMs.
0: That's insane.
1: Yeah. So the environmental cost of these Mm. CDs, which were mostly thrown away. I mean, I kept getting them. We already had America Online. We didn't need a free trial.
0: Oh, you can just like gift it to... Well, I guess somebody else already had it. Yeah, they're sending it to everybody. So I mean, but it was
1: very effective. I mean, they grew like crazy. So in 1997, they acquired AOL, acquired CompuServe. Uh, mm-hmm. which was a competing ISP, uh, Internet Service Provider. In 1999, they acquired Netscape. Do you remember Netscape, the I browser? I do, yep. Mm-hmm. So Netscape was a competitor of Internet Explorer mm-hmm. back in the day um, and Apple's uh, Safari mm-hmm. browser before Google Chrome, Mozilla yeah, Firefox. that's what um,
0: we, we use Netscape okay. to surf the web. The,
1: the, the World Wide
0: Web. Yeah, the World Wide Web. Yeah.
1: yeah. So in... The year 2000, AOL was at its peak with 25 million subscribers mm. and a $125 billion valuation.
0: That's insane.
1: They were riding high.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Good for them.
1: Good for them. Not for long. So their bubble was about to burst um, along with the dot-com bubble as a whole. So in the year 2000, AOL... They saw rising competition. They were tied directly to dial-up internet. They were selling a service that you know was used through dial-up internet, Mm -hmm. and dial-up internet was the old school, right? Right? You know that was from a few years ago. People were moving to broadband, right? Yeah. And with broadband, you didn't need your modem. You didn't need you didn't need um, you know you had your cable provider. Yes. That could provide you internet
0: is that like when you could then now hook up your computer to like the ethernet yeah yeah right
1: right so you didn't need that phone line to get on the internet anymore and you didn't need so you didn't need AOL but not everybody was moving you know this was going to be a slow transition to Mm -hmm. broadband Mm -hmm. right it was going to take some time right but you know they were looking ahead sort of
0: (laughs) not not too far (laughs) I
1: mean in one direction yeah and so they said we're gonna we're gonna have to make some changes. Like we see advertising becoming a much more um, important strategy that we're gonna have to get into. They're they're seeing Google, the rise of Google, mm-hmm. um, with Google search engine. Um, they're seeing Microsoft, and they want to get on that advertising world in that advertising world. And so in the year two thousand, they merge with Time Warner in what was at the time. I think it was the largest merger ever in the world. AOL Time Warner. AOL Time yeah. Warner, yes. Yeah. It also went down as one of the worst corporate mergers in history. Oh. So their cultures collided, oh. the AOL and Time Warner cultures. Um, mm. They just, the, the two sides did not get along. They couldn't, it seemed like they couldn't do anything right. Oh. Their timing could not have been worse. The internet bubble. Yeah. So this the valuation at the time was sky high and then the internet bubble bursts and all these internet companies, their valuations come crashing down and also along with it, online advertising Mm, for a period of time comes crashing down, which was going to be a big portion of their strategy of their, you know, pivoting strategy.
0: What what year was this again?
1: Uh, this happened in 2000.
0: Okay.
1: AOL, you know, they just really couldn't, they had nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And, it didn't take long. AOL just, you know, they did. They no longer had their their core subscription business, uh, for their internet service provider. Right. That was going down the tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, they could never really gain traction with their whole content strategy, advertising, uh, the whole Time Warner acquisition. That just did not work out. Yeah. That didn't play out in their favor, and AOL fell from grace. I mean, pretty rapidly to the point where now. You know, you look back and you wonder, how does a company with that much market share that grew that quickly, how do they not figure out something, right, to stay relevant? Mm-hmm. And they didn't.
0: Well, that's interesting, though, because I, I still do remember it because if this happened in 2000, we were in college a couple of years after that and we were still heavily using AIM as yeah. our primary So AOL chat. didn't
1: go away uh, immediately. Right. AOL continued to linger on. Some people still had dial up. Um AOL Instant Messenger survived I think into the 2010s.
0: Right. Cuz I do remember like after post college I remember, you know, everyone was like saying where they were working next and one of my friends said that she was working at AOL and I thought that was a sweet gig because of how much you know, everyone was using AIM as yeah. the instant messenger platform. No,
1: the, so the merger happened in 2000. Clearly, in hindsight, it's easy to say it was the worst merger right. in history, but this isn't, this isn't to say that like in the year 2000, everybody Everything knew that and- th- it was the, going to be the worst merger. I see.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying.
1: All right, that's the sad tale of AOL. Oh. All right, moving on to the last one. Okay. Picture yourself... On a Friday night in 1996, let's say, you're going to spend a quiet night at home with the family. All right. Maybe you're going to make some popcorn, pop in a movie. Where are you going to rent that movie?
0: Blockbuster, obviously. <laughs>
1: Blockbuster video.
0: Sorry, I thought you were gonna say something about um watching the TJIF sitcom lineup because that's what I was doing on Friday. Okay,
1: let's say you you go out and you get it on Friday, but then you save it for Saturday. Yeah, Got that's it. true. Because you gotta watch your step by step. your family matters. Your family matters, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, Saturday movie night. <laughs> Got it.
1: <laughs> so Blockbuster Video. So, Blockbuster was founded in 1985 in Dallas mm-hmm. uh, as a single location, mm-hmm. a video rental store. They stocked 8,000 VHS tapes in a single location. So, the founder, uh, so most other stores could only stock maybe a hundred, mm-hmm. uh, in the hundreds of VHS tapes. The founder was in the computer business. Um, he was able to create a more modern, efficient checkout system. Mm. So, you know, that was some early innovation. Uh, it did very well in that early uh, Dallas, that early Dallas store, well enough that they opened three more stores in 1986. Mm. So they grew pretty quickly. And in 1987, Blockbuster received 18 and a half million dollars in funding. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. so that was their first external round of funding. In 1992, Blockbuster bought out the video rental chain Ritz in the UK. Okay, so they were going international. Oh. <laughs> And in 1994, Viacom bought Blockbuster for 8.4 billion dollars. Oh wow! Which I mean, that's a pretty meteoric rise. So they started in 1985, and they were sold to Viacom for 8.4 billion dollars in 1994. By 1993, so just before they were sold, there were 3,000 Blockbuster retail locations, and you know, Blockbuster probably thought that they were they were ready, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were they yeah. were. Um, ready for they were ready to innovate yeah when the world switched from vhs to dvd Mm -hmm. in the late 90s Mm -hmm. blockbuster was there yeah you know they had they stocked plenty of dvds i remember they were ready for it right how could how could things go wrong (laughs) i mean they had at their peak blockbuster had nine thousand retail locations
0: yeah they were everywhere
1: i mean yeah you probably couldn't drive more than 10 minutes right, right without running into a blockbuster right and the, the reason that I said that, you know, I was going to present these in order of nostalgia effect is because like I still think like there's something. So like, you know, you go on Netflix or you go on Amazon Prime or you go on, you know, Hulu or whatever, and you scroll through video, you know, you scroll, you spend half an hour trying to find a, a movie mm-hmm. and then you pick one. There was nothing like walking the aisles of a blockbuster. Yeah, right, right. right. Looking for, you know, you, you've got your different sections. Yeah. You've got your new releases over here. Yeah, yeah. You've got your older movies. Uh, <laughs> you've broken up into different genres. It's
0: the adult section in the back behind a curtain. <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: know if Blockbuster had that, but some other <laughs> sketchy uh, video <laughs> rental stores. I think Blockbuster was more um, family friendly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have very fond memories right. growing up with, yeah. you know, going there with my family yeah. on a, you know, a weekend night, right. or a weekend afternoon, right. picking out a movie or two.
0: You could also get candy and popcorn there.
1: Yeah. So it, it, it was also a convenience store, right. basically, for, you know, when you were going to watch your movies. I mean, yeah. they, they made a lot of money off of those. So, you know, how Blockbuster made their money. One, they uh, made their money off of their rentals, mm-hmm. so their rental fees. Two... They made money off of their convenience store items. Three, they made a lot of money off of late fees. Mm-hmm. Remember late fees at Blockbuster? Yes. Yep. So yep. at Blockbuster, uh, depending on the movie, if it was a new release, uh, generally I think you 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 either had two or three days to keep it out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were late, like if you were a minute late yeah. bringing that thing back that right. had a time on it, yeah, uh, you owed them for another day or whatever it was, right. um, and they they would just keep jacking up those late fees. Yeah, they made. At, at its peak, they made $800 million in late, in late fees? fees in oh a year, gosh. which was 16% of its total revenue.
0: Well, because I also remember that they had a shorter rental time period for the hot movies that were out, like the hot like new releases. Right. And yeah, so you couldn't... like Sometimes it, you had to like return it the next day. Um, and so yeah, if you were going on a Friday, and you couldn't watch your TGIF. You had to watch it then.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah no, you're right. Like, yeah, sometimes you... Yeah, because of how short the rental period was. Like, right. you. yeah, you had to watch that movie right when you brought it home. Yeah. Basically, because you're like, well, I'm going to be busy tomorrow. I better watch it tonight. Right. Yeah. Like, and you, then you, you forgot know, to bring it back anyway, and you right. ended up paying the late fee.
0: Was there ever a fee also, or a penalty fee for not rewinding it? Yeah,
1: be, be kind, rewind. Uh, yes, uh, I think Blockbuster did have that fee, if I remember okay. correctly.
0: Because, I again, the rule followers of my family, we had a rewind machine. Did okay. you
1: have that? No, uh, my family... Couldn't afford the Rewind machine because <laughs> we spent our money on the extra l- line for the, uh, <laughs> the internet access.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, you got to prioritize. Yeah. <laughs> the extra
1: phone line. No, we never had one. I, You know, some of my friends, I, I remember the first time I went to a friend's house that had a Rewind machine. We just finished watching a movie. He took it out of the VCR and put it into the rewind machine and rewound that sucker like at lightning speed. So fast. Uh, uh, but I was like, like. I, I was just like, I mean, the, the VCR has one too. I mean, yes, it's, it's slower, not, but... It is
0: not fast. And like, sometimes you want to just like get out the door, like return that thing. Yeah, that's true.
1: You got to get back before the, the late fee I loved in. my
0: rewind machine.
1: Okay. So Blockbuster, you know, they were on top of the world. All right. I mean, just like all of these companies. Yeah. In 1997, a little upstart company launches. Founder's name is Reed Hastings, Mm -hmm. okay? And he develops this company that takes some DVDs Mm -hmm. and sends them to you in the mail. Yeah,
0: yeah. In a little red envelope. In a little red envelope
1: (laughs) called Netflix. Yeah. Okay? You don't have to go into the store anymore. You can... Go online. You can choose a movie that you want to watch. Uh, they had subscription tiers. So you could have one DVD out at a time, two DVDs out at a time. And Reed Hastings, the founder, said he actually founded Netflix because he didn't want to keep having to pay the $40 in fines he would racked up for oh. Blockbuster late charges. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Yeah. So there were no late fees with Netflix because yes. you paid a subscription fee. Let's say I wanted. Let's say I paid ten dollars a month to have one DVD out at a time. I could keep it as long as I wanted. I could keep it forever and just keep paying them ten dollars a month. Right. Um. They didn't care. Right. And I, when I send it back, I can go on and pick out a new one. Um. And they were lightning fast. Like I could, I could have a queue of. Te- I didn't have Netflix in the yeah, early I days. I, I wasn't cool either. enough. My grandfather had Netflix. Oh,
0: he's really cool. Yeah. He was so. <laughs>
1: he was the first person I knew that had Netflix and he loved it. And I loved visiting his house because he always had a movie. He always had. Yeah. I think he had two out at a time. So he had this queue. We could get in on that queue if we, you know, if we wanted to, (laughs) yeah, he knew we were coming over or whatever. And so you would send back a movie as soon as they scanned it Mm -hmm. in the, like the postal service, Mm -hmm. Netflix knew it was back. It was on its way back. You got your next one. You get your next movie like the next day. It was crazy how fast it was. So Reed Hastings, founds Netflix in 1997. Netflix grows pretty fast. Okay. In the year 2000, Netflix had $35 million in revenue. Okay. Okay. So from 1997 to 2000, they grew to $35 million. Mm -hmm. They weren't profitable. Uh, They had some in the 50 something million dollars in expenses. Mm,
0: Because of like postage and all that? Yeah. All
1: their expenses, licensing fees for the movies, you know, staff, all the, all the different costs for running the business. At that time, Reed Hastings, the founder, goes to Blockbuster and tries to sell Netflix. Mm. One of, in hindsight now, this has to be one of the single worst decisions in corporate history. Reed Hastings tries to sell Netflix to Blockbuster for $50 million. Oh.
0: Was it a pride thing? Like what? No.
1: I mean, they may not have been worth $50 million at the time. I don't know exactly what they were worth. I mean, they weren't profitable. Right. Um, They had $35 million in revenue. Yeah. I mean, maybe they were worth $50 million. Who knows? They were flat out rejected. No counter offer. Right. No nothing. That year, Blockbuster raked in about $5 billion in revenue. Yeah. Okay? And they just didn't see Netflix right. as a threat. Yeah. they They They're like, th- we're good. Yeah. We don't need this rinky dink, yeah. you know, DVD like mail. by mail. People yeah. aren't going to want to wait for, you know, a, a, a couple days to get a movie. Like, they can come into our store and get it. We've got Blockbusters everywhere.
0: Right. Right.
1: What are you Who are you? Yeah,
0: yeah. Be gone. <laughs> so
1: the interesting thing was, though, even though they were not yet profitable, Netflix was growing incredibly fast. So I looked up their growth metrics. In the year 2000, the same year that they offered to sell to Blockbuster, they grew 600% from the previous year. In... Six times revenue in revenue uh, from the previous year. Okay,
0: but not profit.
1: No, that yeah they, they they didn't get to profitability yet. But that's common for um, early stage startups, especially doing something as expensive as licensing all of this you know these movies and sending okay. them out by mail. Yeah, uh, trying to acquire customers very quickly. Like you, I you know you wouldn't expect them to be profitable yet. Mm-hmm. And for the next several years, they grew you know over a hundred percent each year. Mm-hmm. So their their growth was was very fast. Blockbuster says. No way. Go home. Keep sending out your DVDs. We're good. In 2002, Redbox launched.
0: Right. Okay. I remember Redbox. We still have a Redbox yeah. down the street.
1: Redbox is still around too. They are still a big business. Mm. One of these three companies is not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. So
1: in the early 2000s, Blockbuster begins to fall from prominence, right? Mm. So they made that fateful decision not to... Purchase, not to acquire Netflix. More competition is coming onto the streets in Redbox. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you know, I don't need to go. Let's say I do want to rent a movie right now. I don't need to go wait in a store. Right. And for Redbox, I don't need to lease an entire location. Right. I I can fit all of the movies that my customers want in this little vending machine box. Yes.
0: And if they put it outside of like a CVS or another convenience store... That's the, you know, that's the convenience store part of it, right? That's,
1: that's a draw too. yeah, exactly. Like they can buy their their goodies for their movie there, stuff, yeah. but it's also a draw for the convenience store right. or, because it's like, oh, they're coming there anyway. They'll probably pop in and buy something. So, Blockbuster tried, you know, they they tried to catch up, but they were too late. Mm-hmm. So in two thousand four, they launched Blockbuster Online, where you could mm-hmm. try and rent some I movies didn't even online. Know that they had that. Yeah. Well, that's because you had given up on Blockbuster I, by that point. I must have. Yeah. Blockbuster also realized how much customers hated late fees. Yeah. Ended those late fees. Mm, you know, they just said, we're not doing those late fees anymore. Great move for customers, bad move for business. That was almost 20% of their business at right. one point, uh, of their revenue. And also, when you are leasing a store and you have only so much space, you need the incentive for the customer to return that movie so somebody else can rent it right because you don't have the luxury like a warehouse mm-hmm. like netflix is operating right of stocking thousands of the same movie yeah right. you're stocking five of that movie mm-hmm. maybe you know ten if right. it's a new release something like that you need it back you need those movies back so you so you know customers will know when it's going to be back they can come right. and get it right that didn't work out well from just 2003 to 2005 Blockbuster lost 75% of its market share, oh, of its market wow. value. Wow! In 2007, Netflix launched their online streaming service.
0: Right. So yeah.
1: no longer do you even have to rent your DVDs uh, by mail. Mm-hmm. You can go online and rent your movies. Now, when they originally launched, the, the original product was not very good. They only had 1,000 streaming movies, uh, whereas they had like 70,000 on DVD that yeah. you could rent. Right. So... Most people still did the, maybe you, you you did a combination of both or, you know, for a while people were still just doing the DVD thing. Right. I um, remember
0: like not thinking that that was a, a good like business model, like the streaming because you could, not a lot of movies, were, yeah, were, were um, available.
1: Well, even now you don't, I mean, it's not like Netflix doesn't get all of the rights, the streaming rights for the movies that, that right. they, that you could get for the, um, the DVDs that they initially had. Right, right. Right. Especially like the new releases. Right. That sort of stuff. Like there were way more movies on that available on DVD than right. than on streaming, unfortunately. In 2010, our dear Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Aww,
0: so sad. Today,
1: only one Blockbuster store mm-hmm. remains. It is in Bend, Oregon. And um, there's actually a good documentary called The Last Blockbuster. I was just
0: going to say, I did watch that. And that's on Netflix, right?
1: So I think it was on Netflix for a time, which was just ironic. So ironic. Um, But I I was looking for it earlier today to see where uh, you could stream it. And I don't know if it's, it doesn't, it didn't look like it was still on Netflix, but maybe Uh, it is. Netflix today, while Blockbuster is down to one privately owned store, Netflix has a valuation of about $169 billion. Wow. You know, hindsight is 2020 or better. But that fifty million dollar yeah. investment to buy Netflix back in two thousand could today be worth one hundred and sixty nine no. billion.
0: Oh my gosh! Oh, Poor I mean, Black you Buster. win some, you lose some. <laughs> they lost a lot.
1: But those are three iconic companies that were once at the top of their respective games, yeah. and for one reason or another, whether it was competition, um, new you know new technology. Bad luck, the dot-com crash, bad decisions, Mm -hmm. the failure to buy Netflix. They could not innovate in the way that they needed to. Right, And each of those companies is no longer with us in the form that they were when we knew them best.
0: I know. It's so crazy just how much of a household name they were, too. Yeah. And now, like, I'm sure our kids don't even know who they are. Like, if we were to say BlackBerry, AOL blockbuster maybe blockbuster because like 90s nostalgia is coming back and they probably like see vintage like blockbuster t-shirts maybe i I doubt it though if anything but that's crazy okay tony if i were to tell you these names would they mean anything to you have you even heard of them okay Lena morris zoe roth sammy griner
1: no Okay. Never heard of any of those people.
0: (laughs) Right. What if I told you that they are viral memes that you've probably seen before, and I will even show you the images, as overly attached girlfriend.
1: Okay. Seen her before.
0: Disaster girl.
1: Oh, yeah. She's so cute.
0: (laughs) And success kid. Oh,
1: wow. He just... I don't... I think you've got to clean him up. (laughs) He just succeeded at something.
0: So... There is a whole world of everyday folks who accidentally become viral memes. And it's just crazy how many people become a viral meme. There's even a whole BuzzFeed channel on their YouTube called I Accidentally Became a Meme. And it interviews people and their stories on how they became these memes. Interesting. And it just goes to show that like anything that you put up on the internet can be used really for anything like I'm reading these stories of like multiple meme celebrities I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. for celebrities and almost all of them started like with their image shared online like especially Reddit uh, you know apparently like you can just put anything on Reddit yeah and it can just be used over and over again so and also other like public album forums like Flickr And I mean, you know, anything that you put up on your YouTube is public to people. So I'm going to highlight just these three people that I said. There's a story behind every accidental meme celebrity out there. But I just kind of want to talk about how some of these people just rose to like a viral sensation and what they kind of did with their um, fame um, for a little bit. So um, I'll start with overly attached girlfriend. Her name is Lena Morris. And in 2012, she is from Denton, Texas. She submitted a video on YouTube for a contest held by Justin Bieber, who challenged his friends to create a parody called Girlfriend to complement his hit song called Boyfriend at the time. Okay. Um, And so this video that she made was an exaggerated satire of parts of Bieber's song that um, so parts of his song were kind of perceived to be a little like clingy and insecure, um, and so it showed Lena staring staring at the camera with these like really wide stalker like eyes and like this fixed smile singing about basically like Facebook stalking her boyfriend and other crazy like hopeless romantic lyrics, so the video. Itself went viral almost immediately with almost like a million views in the first two days. And it was shared on Reddit with over 1.8 million views in less than 24 hours. So people kind of like thought that her like crazy facial expression was something unique. And Overly Attached Girlfriend, like a screenshot of her, became an internet meme. And so it features like an image macro of Lena smiling and staring maniacally at the camera. And it's captioned in like so many different ways that portrays her to be like either a stalker or, you know, jealous or committed to her love interest in an unhealthy degree is is what some of these things are um, saying. So Lena took that. And so then she just began posting on YouTube on a more regular basis after the video's viral success. Um, she kind of made overly attached girlfriend her character and she would do like a Valentine's Day video as overly attached girlfriend. If you can imagine, you know, like. The, uh, yeah, the that's great. comedy behind it.
1: Own it. Um, yeah, exactly. Own your meme. So
0: she was able to gain enough subscribers where she could actually quit her job and become a full-time YouTuber Um, Her YouTube channel has more than 1.25 million subscribers today. Wow.
1: So, What's her YouTube channel called?
0: um, Just Lena. So she doesn't... L-A-I-N-A. Oh, okay. So she doesn't really use her last name. She wanted to keep it private, but it came out. It's Morris. But she actually, when she was first... When people tried to first discover who was behind this um, viral meme, she actually went by a different last name. She went by like Lena Walker or something. Mm, I don't blame her. But through the years, yeah, Lena was always like slightly bothered by the fact that her face became the image of a crazy girlfriend. (laughs) And she also never felt like she had control over her image. Yeah, well,
1: that's the scary thing about when you're image gets put up on the internet like that and you don't have control over it
0: right exactly and other things like were kind of crazy about this like overnight like viral success that you know people kind of started like stalking her on like the internet like people like pretended to be her and like claim that they you know were her and, and and all this stuff but she decided to kind of like take back some sort of control so in april of 2021 lena learned from other accidentally famous meme stars about turning their image into nfts to sell now do you know what nfts are because i had to i do really look down into that
1: yeah do you want me to explain it? yeah yeah so (laughs) an nft is a non-fungible token it's a file that lives on the blockchain um and it is a -a one-of-a-kind it's supposed to be a one of a kind file. So, like, let's say you took something like the Mona Lisa, mm-hmm. right, and put it on the on the blockchain. There should only ever be one of those uh, Mona Lisas on the blockchain, um, and you can verify that there's only one because it has a specific address mm-hmm. on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could have a set of NFTs like bored apes or crypto kitties or whatever. And let's say you make a thousand of them. It's sort of like trading cards, yeah. right? Like very yeah, I, rare kind of trading cards. Gathered that they right. were. Like Where, collectibles. Yeah, collectibles. Like, you know, there's a thousand of them. And I can tell because I can look on the blockchain and see this is one of those thousand. If I mm. want to buy it, sure, I can buy it. And, you know, yeah. there's some level of value attached to it, whether it's, you know, depending on how people how much people want it right. uh, you weren't know. there
0: like celebrities that were like were buying nfts oh yeah and like, u- like using them in
1: 2020 2021 up until the crypto the, the latest crypto crash like steph curry right. um tons of celebrities were buying these bored apes yeah um and making it their twitter profile picture their avatar right um and they would spend millions and millions of dollars on some of these things yeah. uh, which now have just crashed in valuation um because okay. i think people just now think that they're jpegs that used to spend a ton of money for
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yes but so i guess like there's there has been this um mentality of these like famous meme stars that in order to have some sort of control or like take control of their image back they just they figured to Be able to like have some sort of like financial control. They can turn them into NFTs and sell them, and so that is what um, Lena uh, Lena essentially did. She tokenized a version of the meme and um, sold it for four hundred and eleven thousand dollars to an NFT collector called Three F Music. And um, again, there's just kind of this community of accidental viral meme stars oh
1: that's funny they should have their own like conference or convention
0: (laughs) well actually i think there 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 is something where they all gather together because a lot of them have all met and some of them actually put content together or create content together on each other's youtube channels where where Overly Attached Girlfriend meets um, Bad Luck Brian. Oh, nice. So um, they do some collabs. And they do collabs together. Oh. Yeah.
1: I mean, do they have to be accidental, though? Like, you got to get, like, the Charlie Bit My Finger kid in there. I mean, like, his parents, I think, put put that up on purpose. But, like, maybe they didn't know how big of a meme that was going to become. But, like... Does he get to go to this convention? Probably. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, it
0: is like people. Yeah, he's, he's part of the where are they now. But there is um, there was like an article about in like 2012, like who the biggest viral stars, accidental viral stars were. And these are some of the people on the list. Okay. The next person is Disaster Girl
1: disaster girl
0: zoe roth so it is a photo of a young girl she's kind of turning back and looking at the camera with like a knowing smirk on her face as a house is engulfed in flames and burning in the background
1: yeah and she's young like yeah. this is like what like a four-year-old girl she's or something four. yeah she okay. was four
0: so the the story behind that meme is is in 2008, Zoe Roth. Um, it's from North Carolina. She was just four years old, and her mom had come home and she told her family about a fire station training that was like putting out a fire at a building under a controlled burn. So it was it was you know not an accidental fire. Okay, and so the family went out cuz they live by the fire station they went out to just like watch, you know, it all happen and her dad was like taking pictures and you know told zoe to turn around and she just like had this like menacing like look on her yeah, face. Yeah, like look what I did. Yeah. And so and that is what um like the memes have just kind of like become. It's they've taken that and they've just kind of like used her image um, in context of like disaster or like revenge, like that meme is like used for, you know, that context. So her dad took the photo and submitted it in an emotion capture contest on JPG magazine. Maybe it's called JPEG magazine. Not we'll, sure. We'll never know. <laughs> okay. Um, but it quickly spread across the internet as a meme. Um, and so when Zoe became a teenager, Her internet fame like still hadn't died down. Like I still probably use that image in different memes and GIFs that I send. So she was quoted at one point saying, I'd love for this meme to help me get into or pay for college somehow. So after receiving an email in February of 2021 um, that suggested she sell the meme as an NFT for as much as six figures they decided to sell an NFT of the photo for $486,716 wow. to this 3F Music uh, collector. 3F so, Music, yeah, same one, huh? Right. They also retained a copyright over the work as well as an entitlement to 10% of proceeds when the NFT is resold.
1: Oh, yeah, that's something you can do with NFTs too. That's kind of interesting. So yeah. like, unlike if I were to sell... Uh, let's say I sold a painting at an auction Mm -hmm. you know it's a one-time sale if they resell it later because it went up in value me as the original creator doesn't get anything but with NFTs you you can work that into the contract yeah so that's kind of cool
0: so she was able to go to college and um, it really was because other meme famous people were, were just talking about this is how we like you know were able to find success from this nice yeah
1: well so you know not all bad like if you become some sort of Viral meme sensation for something that you didn't choose to and maybe wouldn't choose to, but right. like at least you, during the crypto boom, mm-hmm. <laughs> were able yeah. to make 400 something thousand dollars.
0: Right. But even if you didn't sell it as an NFT, there is a story, another success story of success kid success he is my kid. favorite meme. oh
1: yeah i mean he's a baby yeah. in this Sa- well,
0: sammy griner is his name yeah what is um, he like one uh yeah he wasn't i, I don't think he was even one but yeah. he is it's a picture of and i'm sure everyone has seen this it's it's basically this like baby he's in like a green and white baseball t-shirt he's on the beach he's clenching a fistful of sand with a determined facial expression is how like i would describe it and it almost looks like he's doing like a, a fist pump, like, yes, like kind of, you know, but apparently... It, I think
1: he just pooped.
0: Well, he um, was eating sand <laughs> and she took a picture. It, like if you actually like, zoom oh, into his yeah, fist.
1: yeah, you can kind of see some on his lips, I think.
0: Yeah, it's like a fistful of sand. So this photo, it began in 2007. Lainey Griner, her son Sammy, was trying to eat sand. Um, and she uploaded the photo to Flickr in 2007, and it eventually became known as Success Kid. And the popularity of the image had CNN describe Sammy Griner as likely the internet's most famous baby. And wow, he has a very recognizable face when I and and pose like he's just been on everything. So. After the meme became popular, his mom, Laney licensed the picture and registered the copyright to the image in 2012. He has appeared, uh, or this image has appeared in ads and billboards for Coca-Cola, Virgin Mobile, Hot Topic. Wow. And it was even used by the White House to promote immigration reform. (laughs) Wow. How much
1: do they make from all these uses of the photo?
0: I don't know. But I mean, she was smart enough to copyright it and register and license it to herself Uh so that she had complete control over where her baby's image was going to be used. Yeah, cool. But the coolest part of this story is in 2015, Sammy's father, Justin, was diagnosed with kidney failure and he received dialysis for four hours per session, three days a week. So the family decided to launch a GoFundMe campaign, hoping to raise $75,000 to pay for his medical care and eventually a kidney transplant. And so his mother, Lainey, was initially like kind of hesitant to associate the, compa- the campaign with Success Kid and the meme. But... In the first five days, it received donations of nearly, you know, $9,000 from 300 people. And then the campaign was linked to a website in Reddit and it just like blew up and they brought in um, $83,000 in just a few days. And Justin was able to receive a successful kidney transplant from it because everyone knew Success Kid needed help. Like Success Kid had a dad that needed help. That's awesome. So... You know we talk about failure earlier um and we talk about a little bit of success um like overnight success and what you can do with that yeah success kid yeah those are those are a couple of the where are they now of accidental viral memes but there's there are a couple other like feel-good stories and some not so good stories about other viral memes that are out there
1: okay cool everyone loves a good meme Okay, everyone, you're probably wondering why podcasters are always like, hit the subscribe button means a lot. We'd really appreciate it. So if you don't know, more subscribers means more listeners to the podcast. Each episode, it's more likely that you're going to download a future episode. Also in the charts, that helps a podcast to grow, to get more listeners to be presented in front of a, a larger audience. Only about half or even less than half of the people who listen to the podcast each week are subscribed so hit that subscribe button or that follow button it will help the podcast to get more attention it will help make sure that we keep giving it the attention that it needs to create a quality podcast that you all will hopefully continue to love so hit that button that's all we'll ask
0: all right, Tony, you know what time it is.
1: By now I do. Ten, <laughs> 10 episodes in, I know what time it is.
0: It is time for our Hot Mom of the Week. Yeah, whoa, last
1: time I checked, I'm still high.
0: All right, so we have talked about failure. We've talked about, like, overnight success. And so when I was thinking of our Hot Mom of the Week, I immediately thought of somebody named Ashley Iconetti, now known as Ashley iconetti Haven, And she was also known for a while as Ashley I because she was... A contestant on season nineteen of The Bachelor.
1: Uh, okay.
0: With Chris Sewells. Do you remember Farmer Chris?
1: No, but I'm guessing there was also another Ashley yes. because otherwise we wouldn't know her the initial yes. <laughs> her last name. She was okay.
0: Ashley I for a while. And she started out as a big time failure. Um, in terms of her reputation on the show. So when she was on The Bachelor, she was depicted as this huge spoiled brat. She was a crier. She cried almost every episode, and every time she had her interview she there was kind of a villain on the show that really picked on her, called her dumb. you know they went they were on a two on one the villain and Ashley I and Ashley ended up going home that episode because um. Um, she just she couldn't handle herself on there. Um, She tried to redeem herself on season two of Bachelor in Paradise where she fell in love with a contestant named Jared and it initially wasn't reciprocated. And she came off as very aggressive, a little clingy, a little stalkerish, <laughs> kind of like that meme we were talking about. Oh, um, poor Ashley! Yes, and she left that sh- or She left that season crying. Fast forward to today, she is thriving. She ended up winning over Jared's heart off camera. There, I actually had watched like a internet interview um, where they. That they did where he described the moment that he knew he was in love with her. It was like an actual, like, true love story because it happened off camera. They got married in 2019. Um, They brought a beautiful baby boy into the world just last year who actually I just saw a video. He's obsessed with NSYNC and so he's good in my book, that little baby boy. Um, I
1: see his pictures. He (laughs) is cute. He's
0: so cute. They are a beautiful family together. She is so happy. She has 1.2 million followers on Instagram and she has so many brand deals. Like, you know, she has really taken her persona and didn't stay in... She didn't stay in this typecast of, you know, being dumb or a yeah. spoiled brat. I mean, she does still embrace the fact that she cries at everything. There's there's some posts where I think she's like crying. I think I see like, her
1: crying in a picture with Tom Brady.
0: You know, I, I'm not
1: sure if she's crying or what, but it's
0: a- <laughs> Yes. And, you know, I'd say after all this, she has finally come out on top because she seems so happy and Yeah, she was one of those tragic characters that like I usually, you know, when I see how they're depicted on The Bachelor or those reality television shows, I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't want to follow you or, you know, you kind of like rub me the wrong way. But it was kind of these like behind the scenes things that were happening in her life that made me really intrigued by her and started following her. And um, yeah, I think she's doing really great
1: cool oh i like the choice i mean clearly she's she had some ups and downs she had some failures and successes and now she looks like she's she's doing pretty well
0: yeah so follow ashley i her handle is at ashley i canetti a-s-h-l-e-y i-a-c-o-n-e-t-t-i on tiktok or at ashley underscore i on instagram
1: Well, that's all we've got today. If you enjoyed the episode, hit the subscribe button.
0: And reach out on social media.
1: Dot coms.
0: And hot moms. Signing off.